Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 2, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. I am author of the book released last year, The God Who Fights For You, which is actually a re-edited and updated version of a book I wrote seven years ago called Sifted. And uh, it's, it's, uh, if, if you're a person who is going through pain or challenge or difficulty in your life and you wonder where Jesus is in the midst of all that, well, that's, that's, that's why I wrote The God Who Fights For You. It's a book about what Jesus is doing to transform us in the midst of our challenges. So, and then uh, the year before that, I uh, released a book called Spiritual Grit with a couple of devotions, one for adults and one for teenagers, released right along with it. And before that, it was the Jesus-Centered Life on which this podcast is based. And of course, the Jesus-Centered Bible, I was, uh, I was the uh, executive editor of, of the Jesus-Centered Bible. So there you have it, the whole Jesus-Centered row of ducks <laughs> waddling their way toward you. So, and I just finished another Jesus-Centered resource. It's called the Jesus Center Daily, uh, the biggest, hardest, most expansive and broad uh, writing project I've, I've ever undertaken. It's a daily devotional. It'll be coming out this fall. Again, it's called the Jesus Center Daily. We'll be talking more about, it, uh, more about that as the year goes on. And by the way, just in case you're a listener who's involved in any way in ministry leadership as a volunteer or Maybe you work for a ministry organization or even a church. Uh, I want to cons- I want to ask- invite you to consider coming to our reboot event at our beautiful headquarters, right in nestled in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains in Loveland, Colorado. That event is going to be February nineteenth to the twenty-first, and it's uh, focused for ministry leaders who want to learn how to engage people in a much more interactive and experiential way. Uh, if you would like to, if, if you are frequently in front of people, whether it's a small group or larger than that, and you want to learn how to engage those people so that uh, you create an environment for that's rich with the soil of transformation, um, then come February 19th to the 21st. It is a three-day kind of retreat event. It's an immersive event where you'll get to not only learn, but practice these skills. And my friend Tommy Woodard, one half of the skit guys will be there to help me lead this because all of these skills that we'll be learning are based on the skills of improvisation. So Tommy Woodard will be there to help, help us learn how to uh, learn the skills of professional improvisational artists. It's not as hard as you think. Yeah, it can be done. So for more information about that, you can go to group.com slash reboot, group.com slash reboot. We'll put a link to that also on our podcast episode page. So in this episode, we're going to explore the beeline practice of playing Sherlock. And the beeline practices, again, just as a refresher, a quick refresher, are just a menu of possibilities for us as we try to draw near to Jesus and then reach out in our world in the spirit of Jesus. So it's not a list of to-dos, it's just possibilities. And this is, I, I think I had like 18 or 19 of these practices that um, all are designed to draw you in a closer orbit around Jesus or to bring the impact of Jesus into your relationships in your everyday life. So um, the beeline practice of playing Sherlock uh, simply references the way that Sherlock Holmes paid attention to details. Uh, That's how he solved mysteries. And we're going to learn how to take that same spirit of paying attention to detail details and focus it on people. How do we unlock the mystery that is that person in front of us? So uh, it means simply that we're going to practice a Sherlock Holmes-like commitment to seeing people well so that we can help unlock the truth about their God-given identity and free them 
from the prison of their false identity. Though that sounds like a really lofty goal, but it's possible to have this kind of impact in your everyday life in the relationships you're involved in. So, and we do all this obviously because we experience and see Jesus doing this over and over in other people's lives. So we're gonna, in this episode, take a look at how he did that and draw some understanding from that and then put the filter of Sherlock Holmes over that, if you can believe it. So when we draw near to Jesus, by the way, the fruit that spills over in our life really does impact the way we live. We start to live the way he lives. So as we study him and draw close to him and notice what we notice about how he interacts with people, that affects the way we interact with people in our own lives. And if we're going to help decaptivate other people, we're going to need to learn new ways to unlock the mystery of who they are, to unlock the door of their cell. So today, I have my daughter Lucy with me. She's home from college, and she's right now um, lounging in her bedroom um, that still looks pretty much like what she left it. Uh, so Lucy, would you say hi and give us a little update on your life? What, what's going on in your life? Well, hi, I'm glad to be back. Um, update on my life. Um, I'm right now trying to decide between if I want to be a doctor or a nurse. So trying to make that decision and um, looking to my future to see um, what kind of schooling I need to do and everything. So big decisions are happening, but I'm excited and I'm trying to really discern um, where God wants me right now. So that's been exciting, but scary at the same time. Um, I just came out of a good semester and yeah, had some hard classes, but good classes. I was dissecting cadavers for a semester. So yes, we, we heard <laughs> a lot. We heard a lot about anatomy class in the last few months. Yes. So I, I, it would be fascinating. I think just give a quick idea of what it was like the first day that you entered the cadaver lab. Yeah. Well, CSU actually has one of the best undergrad cadaver labs in the world. And so or in the nation right now. So um, for we people have, that don't uh, have forgotten what a cadaver is, you might need to explain that. Um, so cadavers are dead bodies, dead people um, that um, they don't, they're people that donate their body to science so that we are able to see what it looks, what our body looks like on the inside. Yeah. So, so when you enter the cadaver lab, you see dead people. Literally at eight in the morning. It's yes. <laughs> so, um, Almost every day at like eight in the morning, I'd go into lab and we have 36 cadavers and I would use my probe and um, be with other people and we'd be trying to find different things in the body and um, understanding more what our body looks like on the inside um, I have on a to, very I intricate have, level. So. I have to say that, you know, the phrase, use my probe, makes me, <laughs> makes me uncomfortable just hearing it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, me and my probe. <laughs> Yeah, so it was a good semester. A um, the first day was very shocking and kind of traumatizing, and I was like, I might never eat meat again. Um, but I got over that and ended up being um, one of my favorite classes I've ever taken. So cool, and I learned so much. Um, so yeah, you know, I know what's a lot fortunate more about what my body looks like. So yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, what's fortunate the whole not eating meat again. I, I don't know if you knew this, but you really actually never have to eat human meat if you don't want to. <laughs> That, that's Talking. that's not something you have to I do. I know. Yeah, yeah, thankfully. I Well, sometimes meat looks like human meat, though. And All oh. right. I think this conversation <laughs> reached an abrupt end. So, um, <laughs> so Lucy's uh, halfway through her junior year, and so her, your uh, uh, kind of thoughts uh, on uh, on ramp into the rest of your life, that's that's kind of when it starts. It's like yeah. halfway through your junior year. Now you got to, like, think about the reality past college at this point. So yeah, so, yeah, yeah. That, that's an interesting time Very in life. Daunting. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to start out today by, say, I said the, the Beeline practice is called Plain Sherlock, and it really is taking some of what we can learn from Sherlock Holmes, a fictional character, and redirecting all of that energy toward how we engage people, and also using that as a filter to understand Jesus and his heart better. So, of course, we can't start out without listening to a little Sherlock Holmes. So mm -hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a scene from the, uh, an old BBC series on Sherlock Holmes that I think is really excellent. It's not the, one, the most recent one with Benedict Cumberbatch. In this BBC series, uh, Sherlock Holmes is played by Jeremy Brett. 
and he is brilliant in this role. And this scene, I often use this scene um, in my own face-to-face -face training with ministry leaders as I'm teaching them how to do what we're about to explore, what Lucy and I are about to explore. I have them watch this scene and pay ridiculous attention to Sherlock Holmes and what he does to unlock mysteries. So this is a short, like four minute scene. Um, I wish you could watch it, but of course you're just gonna have to listen to it. So let me give you a visual of what, what's happening in this scene. It's just Sherlock Holmes and Watson in Holmes's uh, little apartment. They're uh, sitting looking at this bowler hat that they found in the street along with a, a goose that had been left behind from a butcher shop. And the goose had a, a tag on it that indicated who, who the goose was supposed to be for, but it just had the initials. And then this bowler hat was left in the street as well. So Holmes and Watson are kind of playfully trying to see if they can figure out who the hat belongs to based only on the, on the information that was left on the goose and by staring and studying this hat that was left on the street. And Watson, essentially, you're gonna hear this, Watson will say, uh, how are we supposed to know who owns this hat? There's no way. Think of the you know, hundreds of thousands of people who live in London at that time. Um, and uh, Holmes is out to show Watson that you can figure out a lot more than you think if you just pay better attention. So I will try to narrate a little bit as we watch this because there's some gaps, obviously, when there's no dialogue happening. So I'll try to fill in the gaps about what's happening. But you're going to see Holmes and Watson. You're going to see if you can picture in your head Holmes and Watson uh, just looking at this bowler hat and trying to figure out who owns it. So let's go ahead and listen to this scene. Here we go. What do you get from that? Battered old felt. You know my methods. What do you yourself gather as to the individuality of the man who has worn this particular article? It was accompanied by a goose, Watson. For Mrs. Henry Baker was printed upon a small card attached to the bird's left leg. Watson is looking at it with a magnifying glass. Well, apart from the initials inside, H.B., presumably Henry Baker, I can see nothing. On the contrary, Watson, you can see everything, but you fail to reason from what you see. You are too timid in drawing your inferences. Then, pray, tell me what it is that you can infer from that hat. That the man is highly intellectual is, of course, obvious, and also that he was very well to do with the man past three years, although now he has fallen upon evil days. He had foresight, but less now than formerly, pointing to a moral retrogression, which when taken with a decline in misfortunes, seems to indicate an evil influence, probably drink. This may account also for the fact that his wife has ceased to love him. My dear Holmes, he has however retained some degree of self-respect now. Is out of training entirely. His middle-aged has grizzled hair, which he's had cut within the last few days, and which he anoints with lime cream. It is also highly improbable that he has uh, gas laid on in his house. <laughs> yeah, well, now you are certainly joking. Not in the least. Well, I have no doubt that I'm very stupid. For example, how do you deduce that the man is intellectual? It is a question of cubic capacity. So Holmes puts the hat on and it's too big for him. A man with so large a head must have something in it. Well, the decline in his fortunes then? These flat brims with the curled edges came in three years ago. It is a hat of the very best quality, Watson. Look at the band of ribbed silk and the excellent lining. <laughs> If this man could afford so expensive a hat three years ago and has had no hat since, then he has assuredly gone down in the world. What about the foresight? The moral retrogression? Ah, here is the foresight. These securers are never sold upon hats. If this man ordered one, it is a sign of a certain amount of foresight, since he went out of his way to take precaution against the wind. But as you see that he has broken the elastic and has not troubled to replace it, a weakening nature. Hmm. 
The further point that he is middle-aged, that his hair is grizzled, that it has been cut recently, and that he anoints it with lime cream can all be gathered by an inspection of the lower part of the life force and witness the moisture. Obviously a feverous fire. Therefore not in the best of training. But his, his wife, you said she had ceased to love him. This hat has not been brushed for weeks. When I see a man with a week's accumulation of dust upon his hat, and his wife has allowed him to go out in such a state. I fear that he has been unfortunate enough to lose his wife's affections. He might be a bachelor. Nay, but he brought a goose as a peace offering to his wife. Remember the card attached to the bird's name? Yes. Well, you have an answer to everything. Just a minute, just a minute. How do you deduce that there is no gas laid on in his house? One tallow candle stain. Or even two might cut my chance, but when I see Watson, no less than five. He never got candle stains from the gas jet, Watson. Are you satisfied? And there we have it. Sherlock Holmes and Watson. Uh, I hope you could picture some of that in your head, but um, I think it's fascinating to slow down and understand what exactly is Holmes suggesting that works to unravel mysteries because he's really living out in a four minute stretch, his entire philosophy of how you uh, solve unsolvable mysteries. Uh, he never sees a mystery as unsolvable. And the truth is people are often, they often feel like unsolvable mysteries. But the only reason they feel unsolvable is because we don't slow down and use the skills that Holmes is displaying here in this scene. So, Lucy, I, I thought it would first be good for us to talk about what you notice about some of the methods that Sherlock Holmes uses to try to unravel the mystery of who this person is that owns the hat. What are some things that just pop out to you that you see him doing here? The first one that really pops out to me is just um, he knows people really well and he knows their patterns really well. Like the thing with, um, you know, a wife always brushes the hat and she hasn't done it in three weeks. So there must be something, you know, they must be struggling in their marriage is something where it, I don't know, to me, it, if you didn't know people well and you didn't know people's tendencies and their patterns, you would never come to that conclusion. So the only way he could really come to that conclusion is by knowing people well and knowing their habits. Yeah, and that's interesting because, uh, I mean, you say that and uh, when we hear it, we think knowing people well. Oh, of course, you know, people well. But actually the way that you know people and their patterns is you're always studying them. You're always curious about them. You're always, you know that like uh, one of my favorite things to do uh, in the past, especially when we'd go on vacation, we're on a long trip, is we look at the bumper stickers on the back of a car and see if we can deduce um, everything we can about the family that's in that car just based on the bumper stickers. And it's a fun way of doing what Holmes did in this scene where you, you take little clues and you try to understand the, the, the relational or habit pattern or uh, characteristics of a person who would put a bumper sticker like that on their car. Um, right. In one of my trainings, I actually show a slide of a VW bus with that's just plastered with bumper stickers on the back of it, and I ask the group to pick out as many things as they can about what the person who drives that van values based only on their bumper stickers. And it's kind of like that when we do it live with people. We just pay better attention to the nuances of who that person is, and then we get pretty good at understanding how people are you know, what's, what's going on inside of them instead of what's just going on outside of them. And I think this was a skill that Jesus used to perfection over and over again. In fact, I believe that the many of the encounters that Jesus had where we think that he's using supernatural power to really see inside that person's heart and soul is actually him just paying ridiculous attention to them. It's not a supernatural power. It's just something we don't do very well at all. And when Jesus does it well, it looks supernatural to us. So, so what, what other things did you see him doing besides just understanding how people, the patterns of people and how they act? What else did you see? Um, well, he, um, there's nothing too small for him. 
to notice. So things like um, the candle marks on the back of the hat or the elastic being broken. Um, I think Watson saw those and they're like, well, those don't give us clues to the person. That's just what happens to a hat. Um, but Sherlock used those small things to point to a larger story going on. Yeah, it's interesting um, because uh, like, like when you're in um... – when you're in a relationship, when you're in a romantic relationship, so I'm married, you have a boyfriend, um, and when you're in a relationship like that, one of the things you hope for is that the person is paying attention to your little tiny details. Like yeah. one of those is your, one of your quote unquote love languages is flowers, right? <laughs> it's so girly, but yeah, I love flowers. But what do they mean to you? Why, why, do, why are flowers important to you? I think it represents to me a bigger, I, I love flowers. I think they're beautiful. They bring like life to my house. And so I love to like buy flowers, but when somebody buys flowers for me, it, it's not just the flowers. It's kind of what it means that they're paying attention to me and they know this is important to me and they went out of their way to, to get me something that they know would be important to me. Even more important would be if you didn't have to tell them that yeah. flowers are important. Yes, right? that, that's, you would want them to not have to hear, oh, I really like flowers and just be able to go out and get them because they're paying attention. Yeah, and yeah. that's the key. You'd have to be paying attention to these details in your life. You'd have to notice, oh, she has flowers on her table. Yeah. And she always has flowers on her table. And uh, even the flower, sometimes she has flowers that are dying on her table <laughs> because she, she, oh, I wonder what that means. Maybe what I can discern about Lucy is that flowers mean a great deal to her. They have a metaphoric meaning to her that goes beyond just decoration in the house. So you start to slow down and notice those kinds of details. And in the case of Sherlock Holmes, that helps him to understand kind of the characteristics of the man that was wearing that hat. For us, it helps us to understand the characteristics of the heart of the person. Anything else that you picked out about what he was doing in this scene, anything else that stuck out to you that was some method that he uses to help understand and unlock mysteries? Anything else pop out? Well, he used more than just his sense of like seeing, like he was feeling the hat, he was smelling the hat. That's how he knew it was like the lime stuff. Yeah. So he's using multiple senses. Which um, is a, another way of saying he's all in. That's an interesting way to think about this too, that if you're going to pursue others and you want to help unlock them, the mystery of who they are, you have to be all in. You have to be able to give everything to that pursuit, not just a part, a, a compartmental part of yourself, but all of you in that yeah. pursuit. I thought what would be interesting then is for us to transition here into uh, something I wrote about in the Jesus-centered life with this beeline practice. I used uh, some insights that the author Maria Konnikova had when she wrote her book, Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. I thought this was a fascinating way. She, she was basically trying to extract what she could learn from Sherlock Holmes into ways that we can learn how to think in our everyday life. And um, I love the things that she pulled out. And so I thought it would be interesting for us to take these four things that she points out and then translate them into how we see Jesus living these same things out and then how we can live these things out in our own life. So the first one is be obsessively observant. Be obsessively observant. We've already kind of talked about that a little bit. Here's what Konnikova writes in her book. It's not just about the passive process of letting people enter into your visual field. It's about knowing what and how to observe and directing your attention accordingly. What details do you focus on? What details do you omit? Omit. And how do you take in and capture those details that, that you choose to zoom in on? So I thought it'd be interesting for us to just take a story, an encounter Jesus had with someone, and see if we can find these four things that Konnikova has pointed out that make up the, the Sherlock Holmes method. And this first one is be obsessively observant about the person. And so I thought it'd be good for us to reference the story of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to summarize the story. And Lucy, you and I can reference back to details in this story as we go through this. I'll read the lead into the story. Jesus had to go through Samaria on his way to Galilee. 
So eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Well, the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. And the story goes on with the woman saying, well, you don't even have anything to get water from the well. She's, think he's, she, she's thinking he's talking literally right now. And, uh, and so she says, you don't even have anything to get that water up. And besides, do you think you're any greater than her ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? Um, and Jesus re, you know, replies to her, anyone who drinks that water from the well that you're drawing from will get thirsty again. But if you drink the water from me, you'll never be thirsty again. And the woman says, basically, well, give me some of that water then, because I, I don't want to be thirsty anymore. And then Jesus tips the conversation in a way she never expected. He tells her to go get her husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, hey, yeah, you're right about that. You've had uh, five husbands, and you're not even married to the guy that you're with right now. And the woman, in the Bible, it's so, it's so like uh, muted, uh, because we don't get the tone and context of her voice. But, but she, cause she basically says, sir, you must be a prophet, <laughs> but can you imagine she, the, the shock of, oh my gosh, you must be a prophet. How would he know that about me? Um, and then she transitions right out of that to asking kind of a, uh, a strange rabbit trail question. Maybe the, the encounter was so surprising and, and unnerving and disoriented at this point that she just kind of blurts out the first thing she could think of, which is um, she, she asks him that the Jews say you can only worship in Jerusalem at the temple, um, but the Samaritans say that you can worship God at, uh, here at Mount Gerizim. So she asks him this weird kind of question about where, where is proper to worship God. And, and Jesus responds by saying, well, there's going to be a, a time coming when anyone can worship God anywhere they are, no matter what they're doing. You won't have to be in a physical place to do that. And the woman says, well, yeah, I know the time that's coming you're talking about is when the Messiah comes. And when that happens, that Messiah will explain everything to us. And Jesus says, just flat out, I am the Messiah. Um, and then the disciples come back and they see him talking with this woman and they're shocked about it. They, they can't believe he's standing there alone talking to a woman who's a Samaritan woman. On every level, he's breaking social mores. And so they ask her, you know, what do you want with her? Why are you talking to her? And the, the woman just then drops her water jar and runs back to the village and tells the entire village that she has met the Messiah. And the, the whole village comes out to meet Jesus. So there you have this strange encounter that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at the well. And uh, first off, uh, I thought it would be interesting, Lucy, for us to talk about um, just think about this for a second. Jesus sees this woman at the well and he starts to engage her in conversation. What do you think um, at the beginning of the conversation, what is his attitude towards the woman? What is his, I guess another way of saying it is, what is his goal for this interaction? If you think about uh, how it progressed, what do you think he's thinking at the start of this conversation about what his purpose is in the conversation. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Um, well, I think Jesus always has um, the end goal in mind. So I think every time he's, he's communicating with somebody, his end goal is freedom. Hmm. Um, so I think even at the beginning of this conversation, he, he begins this conversation with this woman very purposefully, um, knowing that she's a Samaritan woman. And so I think from the very beginning, you see him already breaking social, social boundaries. And I don't think he's doing that flippantly. I think he's doing that um, with the end goal of, of setting her free. So from the very beginning, he's breaking social boundary. And you said he's not yeah. doing it flippantly, he's doing it on purpose. 
Yeah. From, just with that alone, what do you think his purpose is in from the very beginning, breaking the social boundary of talking to a woman alone and talking to a Samaritan woman alone? What do you think he's trying to communicate? Um, well, I think it takes her, for sure, takes her off guard. So he's already kind of, I think when people are taken off guard, they're more receptive to hear or and more receptive to share. Um, yeah, I really love that. I, the whole idea of taking someone off guard, we don't normally think of that as a positive, do we? But, but Jesus does this all the time. He takes people off guard. And, it, and just think about that phrase, off guard. We move through life on guard yeah. um, because of the way life has treated us and the protective way we, we surround our soul with, um, you know, sort of protective devices to keep, keep all vul our vulnerabilities safe. Um, we are always on guard on some level or another. So in order for him to access her heart, he has to put her off her feet a little bit. There has to be an, right. opening, there has to be an opening into the soul and we right. typically keep that door locked. So putting people off guard a little bit ha can have the function of cracking the door open a little bit. Right. And I think what he s begins with and what's carried through his entire conversation with her is um, I think he's subtly communicating that he sees her as a person, not as her um, her sins or, you know. Um, or her race racial status or any of that. Yeah, or anything like that, especially because, you know, I've heard um, lots of sermons about how, like, she's coming to, to the well in the middle of the day, which is when you don't come. It's So she's obviously going to this well to at a time that's not normal. Um, and, you know, even though she's shocked Jesus knows um, her, you know, five husbands, there's people in the town that know. And so I think she probably has, um, is always treated as a woman, she's always treated as Samaritan and she's always treated as, as, you know, less than because of um, her and husband's and, and a failed wife. Uh, the yeah. only one, the only one that could really dissolve a relationship at that time was the man. Right. So think about that five times in a row, a man rejected her. Right. So, so I think there's a lot of shame and she probably in every other area of her life is um, communicated with, um, on a level of everyone's, you know, talking to her shame instead of to her. Yeah. And so Jesus, from the very beginning, even by talking to her, though she's a woman, is immediately communicating. I see you as more than like your shame or you being a woman. I see you as a person. That's good. And this first one, be obsessively observant. Um, how do we see Jesus being obsessively ob observant in this encounter? You've mentioned a couple of things already. But how is he uh, obsessively observant about this woman in this encounter? Anything that pop out for you? Um, I think he's observant in the way that he brings about the conversation about her husband's. Hmm. Um, because, you know, he's Jesus. I bet he walked up and immediately realized this woman's broken. This woman's hurting, you know, and, and knowing this stuff. But he doesn't. So I, he's observant. But he's using, but then he's not just going to blurt it out as soon as he realizes it about her. Like he's observant, but he takes his time with her. Oh, that's good. I love that because it's, it's true that he waits to ask her about her husband's until the right moment. He doesn't ask that right yeah. at the start. It's too deep a dive at the start. Right. Yeah, they, have, they have some banter before that that kind of helps him have an on-ramp into her story. And I think right. that's actually a, a good way to think about it. When you're observant about someone, um, you don't just blurt stuff out that you're observing. You wait for the right moment to ask about that thing right. until the person has been conditioned a little bit in your conversation to relax a little bit. And then you can maybe ask, point something out. You know, I just met with a friend of mine about a week ago uh, in downtown Denver. I hadn't connected with him for a while. And... We met at a coffee shop at Union Station in Denver, where there are it, it's a uh, a, a depot uh, spot, a major depot spot for bus bus uh, transportation and rail transportation. And my friend works in downtown Denver, um, but he lives about an hour and a half north of Denver. And I noticed when I w sat down with him that he had a little like a like a little carry-on suitcase with him. 
So first of all, I noticed the carry-on suitcase with him and we greet each other, we talk a little bit, and then I say, hey, what's that about? And he then describes how sometimes he stays overnight down there in downtown Denver rather than making the commute uh, an hour and a half north and back. Sometimes he just stays overnight, especially if he has to work late at his, his office. So he brings a little suitcase along with him. And that then led to talking about that rhythm in his, in his life and how that impacts his family, what it's like to be alone that much in the in downtown without any friends or family around and having that happen every week. What is that like? What are the challenges of that? What are the struggles you have with that? It's a portal into something deeper, but it starts, right. by, it starts by noticing that, there, that he's got a little suitcase there with him. And instead of just leaving it at that, you, you, you treat the suitcase as if that's the crack in the door, that you can follow that down somewhere to something more important, something that matters in the heart. So, so uh, and, and here Jesus is noticing a detail about her that immediately changes the conversation. I mean, it, it suddenly turns it on its end and now it becomes what you might call a more dangerous conversation. Because yeah. now the woman thought it was one kind of conversation and all of a sudden it's not. It's a different kind of conversation. And now she's off her feet for sure. Um, right. So, but Jesus is not hurried, hurried in that either. He, he takes his time with it. Yeah, so. that's really good. He, he waits for the right moment. And that's, that's a way of sensing other people too. When you said uh, about Sherlock Holmes the, that he studies people, yeah. that that is a great observation. And for us, if we become those who study people, then it's almost like uh, our relationships become like music. And we know when to enter in with our instrument into the music. Right. Because we're studying the other person to uh, look for openings and opportunities where we can ask or pursue something like what Jesus did with this woman. So we're sensing when the right moment is, I guess, and we're right. patient enough to wait for the right moment, but we're also bold enough to take that moment when it comes. We right. don't leave it on the table. Right, because he doesn't wait for her to say anything. He kind of switches the conversation yeah. by saying, go tell your husband. So he's so bold there, but he's allowing right. the conversation to happen first. Yeah, he did instigate the the turn in the conversation by asking her that yes knowing that it would open up something for him to talk to her about yeah that's good so uh the second thing that uh that konakova points out is be selective so here's what she writes about that our brains are bombarded by something like 11 million pieces of data that come at all of our senses at once of that we're able to consciously process only about 40 things in, in, uh, in a particular moment. So we get bombarded by 11 million things, but we can only really focus on or process 40 of them at a time. That's mm -hmm. our capacity. So mm -hmm. we see, she says, we see precious little of what's around us. And what we think of as objective seeing would be better termed as selective filtering. So mm -hmm. she, she's trying to say, we think we see everything going on around us, but actually we're selectively seen around us. And that's actually um, a, a strength if you recognize your limitation. So if you recognize how limited we are in taking everything in, then you can uh, decide to be selective in your attention toward the other person. You can blot, right. blot out other, it's, it's the way that you feel like when you're with someone and you feel like you're the only person in the world to them in that moment. Right. Do you, do you know people like that in your life, Lucy, where you, when you're with them, you feel like you have their full attention or is that really, yeah. is that really rare? Um, I think it is rare in the sense of, I think phones have made that a lot harder. Um, I think it's shortened our attention spans and it's always, um, you know, even if it's in our pocket or in our backpack or something, we're always thinking about it or like, oh, I want to check my phone. So I think that makes it more difficult in our culture. Um, but then when you do sit down with somebody and you can tell they're, they're listening to you intently, um, it's very powerful. Um, it communicates um, your importance to them and um, the care they have to 
um, to focus on you. So it's one thing that's like very uh, important in my life, like being intentional. My friends kind of joke with me about it and mess with me about it because I'm always talking about being intentional and how important that is because what it communicates. Um, and I have a friend who you'll be talking to him and about every 15 seconds, he pulls out his phone to check something and you'll be talking and he'll be going, uh-huh, uh-huh, as he's texting. And it is so hard to talk to that person when you feel like they are not fully there and would rather be, yeah, distracted to, to or something else. To use Konakova's language, they're being non-selective in their filtering. They're, 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 or they're still being selective. They're just choosing, I'm not going to be selective with you. Uh, yeah, <laughs> which is, uh, yeah, ouch. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, uh, I know that you and your friend Clayton just met with a special needs friend named Michael. Um, not, not long ago, you just, I think you went out for ice cream with him or, and, and I know yeah. that you mentioned that um, like some special needs young people, they run sometimes. It's very characteristic where they you're, you could be in the middle of a conversation and all of a sudden they start running. And this has happened twice. The last two times you've met with Michael when you and yeah. Clayton met with him. And I heard you talking about you and Clayton trying to understand why does your friend, uh, why does Michael run sometimes? And tell me a little bit about that, about what you were discerning about the reason why he was running. Yeah, well, Michael's um, pretty high functioning. So um, it was a little bit surprising when he got up and just started running because, you know, he can hold a normal conversation with you and everything like that. And so we were trying to figure out, um, but obviously he's not um, going to be able to communicate his feelings and emotions very well. And so asking him, Michael, why did you run? You're not going to get a straight answer out of that. Um, and so Clayton and I were talking about, well, the first time it happened, Clayton and I were talking about something and I think he might have felt like, hey, I'm not getting enough attention. I'm sitting right here. And so um, trying to pull attention back to himself, he got up and started running. Um, but also today we were talking about how um, we're about to go back to college and Michael stays in, in Denver and so, um, and we're some of his really close friends. And so there's this aspect of he's sad that we're leaving and he doesn't, he knows that we don't have much time together. And so he's sad about it. And so, um, in his head, oh, if I get up and run, it means our time getting ice cream together is going to last longer and maybe they'll stay longer. And just this almost not being able to fully process um, his own emotions. And so he gets up and starts running. But that doesn't come from anything Michael is telling us or even anything Michael's really communicating in any way to us. But we have to, so it, it takes some time to slow down and, um, understand people with special needs, but also understand Michael and understand why he'd be doing that. Right. And that, that's what I was going to point out that, that um, what, what the only reason that you came to these conclusions is you slowed down to consider the mystery of his behavior instead right. of, instead of staying on the surface, Oh, Michael ran again. We just need to make, go catch him and make sure he doesn't uh, you know hurt himself or whatever. Um, Instead, you slowed down to try to understand what's going on inside of him and you used clues and context and the emotional context that, of your conversation to try to understand what's going on there. And like Sherlock Holmes in the clip that we watched, I love, I love at the very beginning, he tells Watson that he's too timid in making inferences about what he's observing. And what yeah. you and Clayton did was you, you, you were not uh, timid. In, in the way that you attached meaning to the inferences that you saw in Michael's behavior. Right. You attached something, then, and what I love is about that you did it together. You kind of talked through this together, and you kind of landed on an answer to the mystery. And that answer takes you into the person's heart then. And that's right. and what then gives it's you not back. A, well, and, and it would be so easy to be frustrated with Michael. Be like, Michael, why did you do that again? Like, you're you know high functioning this is not behavior you normally have um but once you understand oh he's sad that we're probably leaving for college again it allows for gentleness to come back in and grace to come back in yeah so. and and the what's interesting about this too is um that that as we are interacting with people like this when we observe these things and start to make our inferences then, like Jesus in this encounter with this woman, 
we choose the moment when we are going to put that on the table. If our goal is to help set captives free and bring freedom to people, as you mentioned at the start, Lucy, um, then we're choosing our moment almost surgically for when we're going to bring that up. Like uh, I was meeting with a friend just today and I was listening to his story. I was getting caught up with him. I haven't seen him in six months. So I was getting caught up with his life. And at the end of him describing a transition he's making professionally in his life, I said back to him, you know, you just told me a story of great courage and mm -hmm. all of the courage in your story is buried. It's, mm -hmm. it's, you're telling me the story of this transition and the process you've gone through, but wow, you're taking great risk right now on behalf of what you feel called to do. And, and that kind of courage often gets buried in our interactions with people. People don't right. point out, wow, that really took courage to do what you did. So I did that today. I just said, wow, you are such a courageous person. That whole story is a story of courage to me. And hmm. you could just see his eyes light up and him feel seen in the moment. Yeah. Because those kinds of courage are, like I said, buried deep inside us. And most people don't notice them, or at least they don't say they do. And then we end up feeling very alone. We're, we're making courageous decisions, but nobody seems to recognize that. And it makes us feel really alone. Right. right. And there's something freeing when somebody is able to see that in you and point it out. Um, I've had moments where I've seen my friends do things that are courageous that they didn't even realize were courageous. They just thought they were hard. And to be able to hear, oh, that was, I, it took courage to do that was very like freeing. Yeah, that's so good. Well, the third thing Konnikova writes about is be objective. Here's what she writes. Setting your goals beforehand will help you direct your precious attentional resources properly but it should not be an excuse to reinterpret objective facts to mesh with what you want or expect to see. So another way of saying that is don't go into encounters with preconceived assumptions about something. Uh, I often say this when I'm leading young people or adults through an, uh, an encounter that Jesus had like this one. I often reiterate, don't bring your preconceived assumptions into this story like you already know the story and you already know what Jesus is doing. Let Jesus teach you by what he says and by his behavior. Let him do the teaching instead of you do the teaching. That means coming to him and saying, even if something you're doing right now doesn't fit my preconceived notion of who you are, I'm going to let what you're doing change my preconceived notion. So this is a huge thing that has unlocked Jesus for me. When I started paying better attention to him in his encounters, I realized things like, wow, he's irritated a lot with people. <laughs> but we don't often admit that, but Jesus is yeah. often irritated both with his friends, his enemies, uh, the crowds. And so you, uh, it, to, to perceive and ingest Jesus as he really is, you have to say, well, Jesus was often irritated with people. Why? Instead of saying, ah, I'm just going to jump over that because the Jesus I know is really kind and gentle and nice. And instead, what we say is, well, actually, he wasn't sometimes. So we know his heart is good, and he's the very definition of good. So why was his irritability good in this situation? That's what it means to be objective, to bring your objectivity into this, instead of subjectively bending Jesus to fit your, your categories you let him bend you. Right. I think when you start to read a story about Jesus, um, if you come in with, I've already heard this story before, or I know what this is about, um, you automatically close yourself off to learning anything new. You're closing yourself before you even begin to read the story. And so I think that's where passivity comes in and where you feel like your relationship with God is boring is because you're not open you haven't opened yourself to actually hear anything new. You're only hearing the same things that you learned maybe when you were in elementary school and Sunday school. And if we're letting our versions of stories that we learned in elementary school dictate how we read Jesus today, um, it's, gonna it's going to stifle and stunt our growth completely because we're relying on knowledge we learned when we were seven, eight years old. That's good. And you know, one, here's something practical uh, as we're engaging people. Um, 
when we're trying to let them teach us about what's really going on in their heart by pursuing them and asking questions. Um, the way to, to figure that out is to throw things out to them like, you seem frustrated right now, or you seem angry right now, or you seem sad right now, and you let them correct it or embrace it at that point. But you're noticing what you notice, but you're then not making an assumption that you really know what's going on there. You put it out to them to let them reflect back to you what the truth is. But you have to put something out there to react to. It's like when in this encounter Jesus has with the woman at the well, he says, go get your husband and bring him here. And that's a normal, uh, that's a normal thing to ask her because uh, culturally you really aren't supposed to be talking to a woman alone at the well. So it sounds normal, like go get your husband so we can have a longer conversation here. And that's not inappropriate. But he has other intentions when he asks, go get your husband. And he throws something out for her and lets her then reveal what she wants to reveal. And then he interacts, then he interacts with that. Or you could say things like, you know what I see in you right now? I see this. And then you let the person correct or embrace what you see. Um, But that's why all of this is about experimenting in our relationships and taking risks in those relationships to see what you can find. Right. And I think risk is a good way to put it because I think so often people do sense things like people, you know, sense, oh, my friend seems, seems a little bit depressed right now, but there it's, there's a danger in saying that because what if they're not? And what if you read into it? And so people, I think it's so easy to hold back and just to keep talking about safe things that you know um, they're dealing with. Um, so taking a risk with people to say, hey, I know you and something's off right now. Is something going on? Um, though it's risky, it's ultimately a good thing because um, oftentimes our, our, when we sense something, it can be true. Um, and to for someone to feel like, oh, somebody's paying attention to me enough to realize this can be huge. Yeah. It and can open the door. And we have to say the kind of the elephant in the room here. The reason we don't do that is because we decide not to spend our courage mm-hmm. in that relationship. We decide to play it safe. And, it's and a, there's a form of rejection in what if I say it and it's not true and it becomes awkward. Or I think we are terrified of rejection. And so we'd yeah. rather stay in the safe zone. And that really, we just have to be honest. That's then about us. Yep. It's about us. Protecting instead, us. Of, instead of them. Right, right. All right, let's, let's look at the last thing that Konnikova points out here. The last thing is number four is stay engaged. Here's what she writes. When we're engaged in what we're doing, we experience something that psychologist Tori Higgins refers to as flow, which is a presence of mind that not only allows us to extract more from whatever it is we're doing, but also makes us feel better and happier. And actually, even a better definition of flow is when you reach this place where you're conscious that you're all in, Mm -hmm. that all of you is invested in whatever this interaction is. Because typically, we save parts of ourselves out, we compartmentalize, we, we ration ourselves in these interactions. But what would happen if you felt like, I'm going all in in this conversation, not in an intense way, but just that your full presence is there, that, right. that you are undivided in your presence toward the person. So that, that stay engaged, you can see that in Jesus' engagement with this woman, that really if he was going to try to engage this woman and have it be okay, it should have been a very brief engagement. Instead, he persists in it, even when it maybe looks scandalous for him to do so. His, his disciples are absolutely shocked when they come back and they see what he's doing. But he takes the risk to stay persistently engaged in her and he changes her life forever because of his persistent engagement. It's the length of his engagement that really leads to her freedom. Well, I think, go ahead. With that, um, I think what's really crucial is the conversation about her husband happens in the middle of their discussion. Normally, after you have that kind of a conversation, there's her shame is put right out there that's when you end the conversation and jesus continues and not even about her husband they start talking about something else so to say like 
I see your shame and I am going to continue talking to you because that doesn't affect me, um, affect our conversation or our relationship. It's huge. Yeah. I don't think she has many people who, if she shared, I had five husbands who would continue the conversation. So I think his engagement is crucial after she reveals her shame. That's really profound that you pointed that out, Lucy, because that's so true that that, that also creates immediate safety in that person because you've just said, yes, I know what you shared. I'm still engaged. I, right. I still want to know you. That doesn't change my level of pursuit with you. That right. communicates such powerful things to the heart of another person. Right. Uh, because if, well, then the thought is, okay, well, I just expressed my worst shame. And if he can deal with that and continue talking, then, then he can deal with me. That's <laughs> so, and, so many people are afraid that their darkness is too dark for God. And that's just such a lie. It's frustrating from the devil. And they, and they, and they for certain think that with each other, our darkness is too big for each other. Yeah. This, is, this is how we live out the heart of Jesus with others in a very subtle but profound way. When a person's darkness is not too much for us, we are acting like Jesus in their life. Right, are, because that's why people don't share lots of times. They're like, they couldn't handle this. They wouldn't know what to say. It's too dark. Yes. So and when good. we enter in and say, no, it's not, I'm going to stick with you, even though this is dark, that's profound. So the nature of this is to persist and take yeah. risks. And I'll go one step further. Ask the obvious question that you're not supposed to ask. You, sometimes we're in a relationship with people and there's an obvious question and we hold back because we think, it, as you said before, Lucy, this might go south if I ask yeah. this. My experience of engaging people is almost always it doesn't go south. Yeah. We, just th we just think it will. But when we ask the question we think we're not supposed to ask, it is a, is a key that unlocks the door sometimes. Because people aren't used to others doing that or right. paying that close of attention or being that interested in their story. So you fuel, your curi you, you fuel your curiosity about that person by asking the obvious question that you think maybe I'm not supposed to ask. Yeah, I've experienced that even in my own life um, because I um, experienced a school shooting in high school. And um, after that happened, the biggest pain in my life was having people who knew that I had just experienced that who would ask me any question under the sun as long as I had nothing to do with the shooting. And for me, it was like, ask the obvious question. Ask the question that I know you're thinking about. You're thinking about it and you're curious and you want to know what's going on. But there's this fear of, oh, what if I offend her? And for me, I wanted somebody desperately to ask me bluntly about it instead of trying to skirt around the, the question. What you're really saying is that it's disappointing when people don't exercise their courage with us. Yeah. It's disappointing. We, we long for them to exercise their courage with us right? because offering us their courage is maybe the greatest gift we can give in a relationship. Right. So gang, to close off here, just as a reminder, the end game for Jesus in his encounter with the woman at the well was her, uh, the restoration of her intimate relationship with God. That's what he was after. And there were many blockages that he wanted to surface so that this woman could find her life again. This woman ashamed and marginalized could find her life again. And, and when she drops her water jar on the ground and runs back to the village, it is her outward sign that something remarkable has changed in her. There's a freedom in her that maybe she hasn't experienced for years. Maybe she didn't even remember who she was until this moment. She drops her water jar. She becomes the first evangelist in history the first person to tell others about Jesus as the Messiah was this woman at the well. So the end game here is restored intimacy. And this intimacy that Jesus wants is the I and you, you and me kind of relationship that we were created to enjoy in the first place. And the path toward this kind of relationship is paying ridiculous attention to him in our pursuit of him. And then um, channeling his heart in our own relationships where we pay a, a ridiculous attention to others. Our intimacy restored with Jesus leads to intimacy restored with others. The two are inextricably linked. Any last word here, Lucy, before we sign off? 
I don't think so. It's good All to right. be here. <laughs> it's great, it great to have this conversation with you as always. And um, I'm already missing you. You're about to head back to college. So <laughs> I look forward to the next time we can hang out on the podcast again. So gang, yeah. uh, thanks for listening. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. You can um, find this episode by going to PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. You just look for season five, episode two, and you can see the links to this episode there. And uh, by the way, tell your friends. If you know someone who'd be interested in this, tell your friends about it. And if you would like to extend this conversation online, we have a special private Facebook page called The Pigs. That's just for people who listen to this podcast and want to continue the conversation with others who are also listeners. So you'll find a link to our Pigs page there on the episode page as well. So subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll talk again next time. <laughs>